Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Just having grace for ourselves in this journey is really important because the judgment is not going to help. I think that's really important to say because I think a lot of people are scared to have these types of conversations because they mm. don't want to say the wrong thing. But we're all in the same boat. We've all been conditioned the same. <laughs> Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. After last week's episode with Seth Godin, we wanted to dig deeper into the marketing and content side of nonprofit fundraising, and this episode definitely delivers. Today, I'm interviewing Natalia Sanyal. Natalia's mission is to help brands harm less and sell better with anti-oppressive copywriting. Her unique approach strays from traditional copywriting techniques that tend to perpetuate systems of oppression. And as nonprofits, we are constantly scrambling to come up with fresh, compelling stories to illustrate our missions, but are we being mindful? In this episode with Natalia, we're pausing to take a hard look at content and the harms our words can inadvertently cause. When Natalia performs her copy audits on the average business, she uncovers terms that are exclusive, demeaning, or that undermine the organization's core values. Today, we are untangling all of this without judgment or shame. Natalia believes we are all figuring it out together, and the first step is just to get honest. Among the topics we discuss in this episode are manipulative writing tactics that don't yield the results nonprofits desire, positive ways to use psychological insight to ensure donor participation and retention, how to avoid words and stories that can trigger negative responses, why informed decision-making or conscious choice is important, what it means to build long-term trust with donors through honesty, not scare tactics, steps you can take to generate copy without generating harm, and what it means to be an ethical, trauma-informed storyteller. You'll come away from this episode with thoughts and ideas to ensure your messaging is really capturing rather than undermining your organization's ethos and achievements. So let's dive in so you can meet Natalia. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Natalia Senyal. Natalia, welcome to What the Fundraising. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I am really excited for our conversation today and really love the work that you do. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself and telling everyone what brings you to our conversation today? Yeah, so I'm an anti-oppressive copywriter and brand messaging strategist, and I work with humanity-first brands that want to sound human, sell like hell, and do no harm. So that's my angle in this copywriting world, and there's a lot of us copywriters out there, not too many 
are taking the angle of reducing harm copy. It's a fairly new concept. I'm not mm-hmm. the only one out there for sure, but that's what I do. And I'm excited to get into this conversation and see how, if there are any like takeaways that I can take from the fundraising mm-hmm. world and vice versa. Can we start by just talking a little bit about what types of harm you're talking about? Yeah. So in copywriting, the whole point of copywriting is to make the sale. And traditionally, copywriters are trained to pretty much do whatever it takes. It depends on who your teacher is, but it's very common to be taught to manipulate through words using psychology and emotion. Copywriters are masters of psychology. And really, that, that's a lot of power. And when you put that into words, we're able to get people to do things like press the buy button. I think it's gotten a lot worse with online business. And yeah, there's just a lot of pressure with sales copy, sales pages, email sales sequences, and even like social media where we are really tugging on emotions like guilt, shame, and fear to get people to do things that we want them to do, convert, whether that's sign up for a newsletter or attend an event or buy things. So there's a lot of that happening. The tactics and frameworks that are being used are, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's this one where it's a very simple framework and where it's basically you state the problem and then you agitate. And then once they're feeling super down about themselves and their situation, you present the solution because it's so much easier to sell to someone when they're feeling desperate. Mm. And that's a very common copywriting framework, the PAS framework. I'm not a fan of that. And you will see trainers, copywriting trainers and teachers, they will be really upfront about the fact that we're supposed to put a knife in and twist it and really make them feel the pain so that we get them to purchase things. And I just, yeah, I don't condone that way of copywriting at all. So that's another way. And then there's language. And I think a lot of people are becoming aware of the impact of language now. There are a couple of different angles. There's language that is non-inclusive, so it excludes certain groups. And then there are the sayings, like sayings that are really old. The problem with that is they're rooted in oppression and Mm -hmm. they're very offensive to certain groups. So there's that. And I have to say that there is typically not one day that goes by where I say something that is not the type of language I want to be using. And that it was really hard for me to just accept that I'm not perfect in this whole Mm. thing. As someone advocating for inclusive language and language that doesn't harm, I obviously am trying my best to learn and recondition my brain but this is the English language and I am turning 39. So it's 39 years of this and I'm going to mess up. And even in this conversation, there might be some things that I say and I've just gotten used to calling myself out in the moment mm. and just being like, I'm going to take that back. I didn't mean to use that word. So just having grace for ourselves in this journey is really important because the judgment is not going to help. I think that's really important to say because I think a lot of people are scared to have these types of conversations because they mm. don't want to say the wrong thing. But we're all in the same boat. We've all been conditioned the same. <laughs> so yeah, there's that inclusive language. And then there's also use of slang as cultural mm. appropriation. And this is kind of a newer idea that people are wrapping their heads around. But when a dominant culture borrows slang that originated in a marginalized culture to sell 
or in their marketing. That's not something that those cultures are going to appreciate mm. for good reason. So there's that with language. And then there's the jargon that we use. This is another one that I'm constantly trying to train myself to use plain language. And often when we're speaking to each other, we don't use fancy words, but when we're writing, it comes out differently. And I think that honestly, it goes back to school <laughs> because mm-hmm. in school, it is not appreciated when you write like you talk. Mm-hmm. You don't do well in English if you're not using fancy grammar, fancy sentence structures and vocabulary. We often are business writing, whether we're writing an email to a colleague or writing copy, we tend to become robot and using fancy mm-hmm. language. That's not accessible to everybody. And I come from the agency side of marketing where like everybody speaks like that to each other because we all know that language. When we're talking about marketing, third marketing is filled with jargon. And now that I've transitioned out of agency and I'm working with entrepreneurs, not everyone understands this language. And it's great because it gets me to practice using plain language in business. So yeah, those are some of them I could go on. (laughs) (laughs) There are some really big nuggets in there. And I just want to say, I really appreciate the piece you said around perfectionism and making mistakes, because I think a lot of nonprofits sales copy is fundraising copy in certain ways. And I think one of the fears sometimes that nonprofits have first related to the piece you said around over manipulation of someone's decision making. And then I think when they fear saying the wrong thing, they either write something super bland and not really moving because they're so afraid to enter into more vulnerable language where they might get something wrong. And so I think that piece is just so important for nonprofits to hear. Yeah. And I think the best way to approach that, it really helps to have a diverse network. If you, if it's just you working, it's okay. If you don't have a team, that's fine. If you have a team, then hire a team of diverse perspectives and cultures and lived experiences. But if it's just you, have a network of diverse perspectives and culture. Mm. That really helps just being around that. And then also allowing yourself to own it. So when you do mess up, to just be public about it and own it, it just gives other people permission to just be learning. Like we're all learning on this journey and it just helps when people acknowledge it publicly. Obviously, like if it's safe for you to do so, everyone's circumstances are different, but I think it's okay to face that fear and you'll find that people are very forgiving. Yeah. So I'm curious, when you're helping someone write with anti-oppressive copy, what does it look like then? Because we talk a lot about psychology on this podcast in positive ways too, that understanding what humans desire or want or how they form their identity can be a really positive way to engage them in your work and in your mission. But then there's this piece around understanding how humans tick and using it in an oppressive way. And so I'm curious, I can imagine you're still conscientious and designing around how humans think, but in a way that isn't manipulating them through, I loved what you said, like fear, guilt, shame, like bringing them into that place. So can you tell us a little bit about what that looks and sounds like? If we were to not manipulate and not cause harm on a sales page? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think 
what the important thing is, we can still use psychology. Like psychology is very handy tool when it comes to understanding your customers, right? Like when we reframe that as, ooh, get into their minds so that we can get them to do things versus really put yourselves in their shoes. Mm. You understand their pains. You understand like their fantasies, their dreams, and then speak to that. And it's okay to acknowledge the pain. Like they need to know that you get them. So acknowledging the pain, there's nothing wrong with that. You need to communicate that, like that you understand what they're going through and why it really helps showing them that you understand versus just saying that you get it. So whether that's like sharing similar experience that you had, like maybe it's in Mm. your own journey that you've overcome something that they can relate to or your client's stories. So Mm. using testimonials and in an effective way, there's a way to do it where it can be misleading. Testimonials are often misleading because they don't give the context. Mm. So you can, for example, say you launch a new offer and it's brand new and it has nothing to do with what you have done previously. And in the past, you have worked with a really big name brand or celebrity who has a lot of credibility. If you use their testimonial on that sales page without the context and letting them know that this was not the Mm. same offer, I didn't work with them on this project, it's misleading. But if if it is a a similar situation or they've experienced the offer and they want to talk about it, that's great because then that is proof. You're showing them that you understand where they're at now and This is where you can be. So that's one really handy tool. Talking about the vision that they have. So focusing Mm. on like where they can go. Transformation is very powerful in copywriting and sales and just converting people in general, showing them that there is hope. So you get where they Mm. are now and this is where you can be if you work Mm. with can really like paint that picture. So I like to replace the A and the PAS framework where A stands for agitation. So it's problem, agitation, solution. Instead of agitation, it's empathy. So PES. We state the problem and then we show them the empathy. I understand this is hard. You're probably not sleeping at night, blah, 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 blah. blah. Mm. And then what if you could have a different reality? Mm. And then some of the tools, like the tools are neutral. Many of them are not inherently bad, like countdown timers, for example. Some people find them very helpful because it gives them a deadline. I am that way. Like if I don't have deadlines, nothing gets done. So if there's a sale going on and I can, for whatever reason, I'm not able to purchase right now, it's helpful to know that I have two days and two hours mm. to do it. The, where it becomes a problem is when the countdown timers are fake. And that Mm. sounds ridiculous, but it is so common. And it's like really obvious too, because if you just, it says 30 seconds left and this deal is going to go away and you refresh the page and it's 30 seconds left. (laughs) So (laughs) and people are catching on to this now. Like in Mm. the beginning, this was a new idea and nobody, no one had any idea about what was Mm. going on. Now people are like, wait a minute. That's not cool. That's like a straight up lie. It depends on how you use it 
So fundraising coffee has a lot of the same language around the problem, but the problem is not necessarily your problem, right? It's a problem in the community. However, I argue that it is also the potential donor's problem because they are kept up at night about it or they're worried about it. So they still have a problem related to the organization's work, even if it's not the direct problem that the organization is solving. And that empathy piece, I think, can also be helpful with donors, not in a way that centers them in the organization's work, but meets them where they're at. We can imagine that someone like you is struggling every day to see blank and blank happening in your community around you. And so they're doing some of that same empathy and then showing how the organization solves that problem. Does that sound aligned with you in terms of that process? Yeah, definitely. And I can see how there's that challenge there. Psychologically, I'm thinking about when you're fundraising, you're speaking to this big idea of which is beyond individuals or about communities and making a difference in the world, which everybody wants to Mm -hmm. want to know that they're a good person because of the impact that they have. But it's just hard to prioritize that. Because as humans, we need to know that like us as individuals, we're safe. Our family, like people close to Mm. us take care of. And then it goes out from there. It's the immediate needs first. So Mm. I can imagine for someone who's fundraising for a cause, that might be a challenge to get people to act now because it doesn't feel like it really touches them. So I'm curious about how people get over that hurdle. And I wonder if it would be helpful to position the message as the responsibility and impact on future generations. It's something that a lot of people are talking about in business now, which is great. Just thinking beyond the now and our responsibility, the responsibility we have to our future generations. I don't know too much about this, but I know that it's an indigenous framework and I believe it's called seven generations. And it's thinking and applying in your operation so that what you do now is positively impacting seven generations to follow. Mm. Don't quote me on that. I just know that's the general idea is getting individuals to think further than just themselves Mm. and and the present. We'll link that in the show notes in additional resources for folks to to look into. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is really important. And I think part of what you're acknowledging, which is very true, is that crisis fundraising is a thing, right? Like when there does feel like there's more of an immediate need or our immediate safety might be impacted by it, people are inspired to give more in that moment. So that is true. And I think there is a growing awareness around the fact that what we do now affects what happens in future generations, but also in six months and a year from now. I think there have been a number of issue areas recently between like reproductive rights, gun control, and climate change that people are really starting to see how short the loop is between their involvement in an issue and the impact it has on their lived experience. But I do think what you said before about making sure that you're not using fake urgency is really important that these things are urgent. And I think there's an urgent case to be made for all of them without saying like, you have 24 hours to give this amount of money or else blank. What we see a lot in political fundraising in the US is like that type of 
urgency where we're all, I got an email last week where you told me I had 15 minutes and or else blank. And so how am I going to believe that right now I haven't, it's another 15 minute situation. So I think it is about nonprofits being honest and transparent. They create match campaigns. There's true urgency there. A donor says we will match funds up to midnight on Giving Tuesday. That's real. And so I think finding for nonprofits too, time box moment that's meaningful, getting your major donors engaged to create some of that urgency, not in a fear-based way, but in an exciting urgency way. And then you don't have to use all these fake tricks. Yeah, exactly. That's when it gets to be manipulation, right? When the urgency is fake or fabricated, then that sucks. But when it's real, then people would like to know about mm-hmm. the, they would appreciate that. Even if there's a negative thing that you're trying to avoid it, that's okay. They would appreciate knowing that they're avoiding a situation mm. in now. So I think, yeah, it's all about not being fake and being transparent. I'm curious about how informed purchase decisions will play into fundraising copy and marketing because making an informed purchase decision is important to all consumers. Like all consumers want to know that they know what they're getting into, especially with higher price points, which is all subjective as well. It depends on your income level. So I try to remind people that if they're selling something that's $50, it doesn't necessarily give you license to not give them as much information because it's only $50. It's only $50 to you, Mm. not to somebody else. And I say this because I've been in that position in the past in my life where... $50 was a lot and I didn't have it. So it didn't make me feel great when I see people selling things online saying that it's only $50. That's another one. There's a lot of those words where we throw them around without realizing the impact Mm. that it has. Only is a big one. But going back to the informed purchase decision, companies tend to avoid spilling all the details. And I just wrote a post about this on LinkedIn the other day, like fine print. That's where all the information is hiding that they need to know about to be able to make an informed purchase decision. All of the terms that they're signing up for is all in this like tiny little print that nobody reads. They know that. Fine print is one of those things that I do not suggest to any of my clients. Like if there's anything that needs to be said in fine print, you need to say it in the regular size font and put it in your FAQ or wherever is appropriate. And... Even in my sales process, so when someone comes to me asking me to do copywriting, say an audit of their sales page, my first question will be, what is the marketing plan you have for that sales page? Because I can make the sales page shine and it can do what it's meant to do. But if you have no traffic coming there, then does it really make Mm. sense for you to tweak this right now? Like you need a plan. And Uh, Plenty of people have been like, oh, shoot, I didn't think about that. And yeah, maybe I'll come back to you another time. And I'm okay with that. People will appreciate that. And in the long run, it's going to work out better for you anyway. And I wonder how this translates into the fundraising world, like informed decision. What I think of straight off the bat is I know that people are hesitant to give money when they don't know how it's being used. And there are reports that are made public. Not everybody wants to go through those reports. (laughs) So I'm just curious about how that's handled as far as informed donating decision. Yeah, you're bringing up a real sticky issue and I'm excited that we're going to talk about it. 
first tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. The informed decision-making, the words I use when it comes to fundraising are conscious choice, that we want donors to feel like they're making a conscious choice. I've never delineated it down to the fear, shame, guilt piece, but I do talk a lot about how we don't want a guilt gift. We don't want a favor gift. That's going to be a one-time thing. You're not going to see retention on that donor. That's not the right don't. That's not how to find the right donor. And it's a, look, you can fundraise successfully with guilt. Totally. You can fundraise successfully with shame. Totally. We see it happen all the time. What we don't see with that, what we see is success around that campaign, around that moment when people are manipulated essentially into making a donation. And we don't see them come back and give another donation. And then we see nonprofits have a 20% retention rate from first-time donors to second gifts. So that tells us a lot about the stewardship we're doing, I think, of those donors. But I also really believe it tells us a lot about how we're getting them to donate in the first place a lot of the time. And so I think what you teach and what you're talking about and what I deeply believe is that the more conscious people are donating in the first place, the more that they're going to be those longer term sustainable donors for your organization. And granted, you're always going to do grassroots fundraising with big networks and you're going to be encouraging people to give for the first time. And there's an identity piece to this that I want to talk about in a minute. But I really agree that, and I think it's really interesting what you said about the dollar amount and how informed we feel like we need to let people be. With nonprofits, this is a little bit complicated because there is this overarching narrative that's imposed on the nonprofit sector around how are you spending every dollar we give you? And there's a little bit of this patronizing relationship between donors and nonprofits. There's this really uncomfortable power dynamic. And some of what happens, I think, in the how are you spending every dollar I'm giving is a little bit of that. It's this micromanaging of the organization in a way that actually really restricts the organization's ability to be flexible, respond deeply to their community, reallocate funds as needed. And so it's this dance between a lot of what I recommend is creating buckets, like big enough buckets that give the organization flexibility around what they're trying to do, inspiring donors around the vision and impact, being transparent about what they know and don't know, not making promises around something they can deliver on. But then there is a certain amount of way that needs to be given by donors around like, is not just to buy this notebook or buy this backpack because ultimately from a giving impact perspective, that type of restricted fundraising is super hard on the nonprofit. So it's complicated. That's interesting. And I'm 
never thought of it that way, but that makes sense. I feel like if nonprofits were just transparent about that, it would increase basically people who are hesitating to give just want to know that they're not being taken advantage of. I don't want to give my money to you if you're going to go throw a party somewhere. Like, how do I know? How do I know you're going to be actually doing the thing? And they are probably extra defensive about it because it's framed as there's probably some guilt in them. Maybe it's not Mm. even marketing, but in them. So they want to know that that guilt is actually being resolved. So I feel like if the nonprofit, and this would probably be really refreshing because yeah, there I know that there is that tension. And if a nonprofit was just straight up, hey, we can't promise you that this dollar is going to go in this bucket, but this is what we can promise. Just in general, that approach to business even is so refreshing. Like with service providers in, in particular, like myself, over-promising is a big one that comes up a lot. And mm. you set the bar for expectation and then you don't deliver that and people don't appreciate that. And obviously it is manipulative. Mm. So just being straight up honest about what how this is going to go down. And even if it feels counterintuitive because it doesn't sound like you're making yourself, you're putting yourself in a position where increasing the chances that they're actually going to convert. I think it does the opposite. I think because you're transparent and admitting that this is not exactly what you want to hear, but I just want to tell you the truth. This is what Mm. might happen just so you're prepared. I think that would probably work in their favor. Yeah. Okay. I have a kind of complicated question that maybe has a sales parallel. We'll see. But I'm curious, like one of the things that I think is complicated about fundraising is that The fundraising is happening in this urgent campaign, perhaps, like a Giving Tuesday campaign. So they've created this time box moment. There is this amount of urgency. Maybe they have a matching gift that they're trying to get by a certain timeline. The impact that they're promising or alluding to or saying they're going to do is a long game. Changing these issues is not quick. And so it doesn't mean they didn't do it, but it's like they didn't do it in what people expect as like a turnaround timeframe or something. I'm curious if there's a parallel situation in sales. Like I think about even products I've bought, or I don't know, I've never really thought about this before, but skincare, they can make all these promises, but it's not like the first time you use them, you're going to see the results. And if you also have to be really committed to the thing, and you also have to use it according to the directions and all these things. And then maybe in a year. (laughs) So how do you recommend folks reconcile with that like, time box moment to make the sale with the long-term results or impact piece? What's coming to mind is actually myself as a consumer. So I have had a lifetime of challenges with eczema. Mm -hmm. And the quick fix is there's plenty on the market and Mm -hmm. I tried them all. And now I realize that those do not work those quick fixes actually end up causing more issues. So when I finally came across someone on the internet who was saying that, hey, it's an eight-week program, you pay for the program, and then you're going to have to spend a lot of money for the the actual... So you need to budget this much for that. Then you can't expect change until probably like the six-month mark and maybe full healing by the first year. 
And she basically said, I don't guarantee it because every everyone's case is different and it really depends on 20 mm. different factors. She said all of that and all of that you think would work against her, but that's what made me sign up. Like right away, I'm like, okay, thank you. Someone who's mm. just being honest about what this actually takes. And it's okay if it takes a year. I've dealt with it for much longer than that. So I'm thinking... For a situation like that, just spelling it out and being super upfront about, yeah, this is not a quick fix. It's going to take a year till you Mm. see results, but the quick fixes don't work. And here's why. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay with telling you that because I know that this is actually way more effective than that is. And Mm. maybe you've experienced it. Maybe you've already spent that much money thinking you're having an overnight fix to a situation. And I think we all know that doesn't work. I'm trying to relate it to fundraising and how, what kind of a parallel that would be. I'm not ever going to suggest that somebody call another company out or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's more calling out and making the villain the concept or the conditioning that we've had or the system. Mm -hmm. We've been conditioned to sell quick fixes. That's just what has happened. Yeah due to many reasons. So we don't need to call out companies, but we can call out the system and explain that that hasn't worked out for anybody. So I'm just gonna let you know, it's gonna take a year. Yeah, I love that. And I think there's a total parallel to nonprofit here, which is just the recognition that if these problems were quick to solve, we wouldn't still be dealing with them. (laughs) They're obviously not quick to solve. They're going to require a ton of grappling and trying and failing. So I think what you said is so important. Okay. So much of what you're recommending folks do, like you said, is bring this level of humanness Mm -hmm. to the way that they communicate through their copy and having transparency and building trust from a very real place. How does an organization, a brand... How do they ensure that same tone and not just the guidelines around we don't use these words here anymore, but also the level of transparency, maybe the level of vulnerability and communications? How do you help teams and brands adopt that same writing style? Yeah, there, it's hard because there are so many little things that we need to think about and it's very overwhelming, right? I don't know how many we talked about here, probably like maybe close to 10. There are so many others and it feels almost like that is a hurdle in itself for people to actually want to change because I've heard that in conversations where people are like, okay, what am I supposed to be doing here because everything I know is what I'm not supposed to be doing. So Mm. I don't even know where to start. Here's a really simple way of thinking about it. When I write a sales page, because I have been conditioned for so long, the harm reduction piece is the last thing I do. So I will write however it comes out, obviously being conscious of what I'm saying, but I need to go back at the end and filter for harm reduction specifically, where I'm not thinking of conversion anymore. I'm thinking, who's this excluding? Do I want that? Do I want to exclude them on purpose? And why? And what is the impact of that? Obviously going through the language and the frameworks and making sure, do they have all the information they need to make an informed purchase decision? So that really helps. Don't try and write your copy while you're trying to do harm reduction at the same time. It's just too much to for your brain mm. to handle. Write all the copy and don't even think about it. And then at the end, go through it. Here's another one that really helps. At the end, once I've gone through everything, I ask myself, if I was trying to convince my daughter to buy this thing, would I use these techniques on her? 
because obviously she's the person I care about the most in this world. If there's anything that is like manipulative, then that's a no, <laughs> mm. right? If there's anything, any language that would cause harm, that's a no. So that would be like a very relatable way of for anyone to think about this. Mm. I was fundraising. Is this how I would want to get money from like my dad? Would I use these mm. tactics on him? And like I said, a lot of the tactics are neutral. So it's just in many ways, like the way we frame it and thinking of it that way, like imagining the person that you love the most and having this conversation with them, it, would you be comfortable having that convo with them? Mm-hmm. We approach this. Okay. I think that's amazing advice. And you can tell me if this next question is like outside of what you feel comfortable talking about, but I know that one of the things that comes up for nonprofits a lot is ethical storytelling. A lot of times what they're having to do in their copy is tell a story about a beneficiary of the program or a community member. And sometimes the topic or the areas that the nonprofits work in are really triggering topics between trauma, sexual assault, those types of things. And so something that a lot of folks have been asking me about recently is how do you write compelling copy for a donor that is both respectful of the person in the story and Mm -hmm. ethical representation for them and not triggering or harmful to the reader of the story as well, especially when it's around a, an urgent need related to a topic that might be triggering. And I'm just curious how you would answer something like that. That's such a good question because I have thought about it from the donor's perspective, how we would treat them in this case. And I haven't thought about it from the person in the story. Mm. And I feel like that one, we have to be even more careful because they're the vulnerable ones. So the donor, I think that just giving them the heads up before they consume the content so that they know what they're getting into, that sounds like a very simple solution. But I know that I would appreciate that. Like when it comes to scrolling on Instagram or anywhere on the internet, I'm very sensitive to many topics. So in general, I don't watch movies and I don't watch TV. And if I'm scrolling on Instagram and something comes up and there's no warning, it's not great. When there is a warning, I'll just scroll past. Or if there's a description of what it is, and I know that it is a topic that I want to learn about, I'm just not in the mind space right now. So just giving them a heads up before you present the content, I think would do the trick for the donors. What about the people in the story? This is a hard one because I think when it comes to overcoming hardship, maybe this goes without saying, but sharing someone's story when it is still fresh, when the wound is still fresh, is probably going to harm them. Mm. And they might not even know it. You might get their consent and they think it's okay but they don't realize the impact it's going to have on them. And that's a very common thing as people who've gone through sexual assault, for example, you will see a lot of sexual assault survivors talking very openly about what's happened to them without any filter of who their audience is. Can you trust them with this information? And how vulnerable are you with them that maybe this is not Mm. such a good idea. You need to be a bit more discerning on who and where you share these stories. So I wonder what would be the solution for that because you can get their consent and it would not be enough to Mm. harm. Mm. I'm not sure what the answer is in that case. I feel like this is a question for fully licensed psychologist Mm. who understands how long it takes to talk about your trauma and what are the conditions 
that need to be in place for them to feel safe, not only in that moment, but really understand what they're getting into. And maybe there's sure a psychologist would know, okay, these are the signs. Mm -hmm. Once you have achieved these milestones in your everyday life, you can feel free to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe not if you haven't. I think that's a really good thing. And I'll do some research around that. And maybe that's another thing I'll link in the show notes as well as some information about that. I think even just the waiting period idea of making that the testimonials that you're getting are with folks who completed the program a certain amount of time ago, perhaps, or things like that might be something to think about. But yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. I love that question. I definitely have never thought about it from that angle, but like thinking about the kinds of people that we're helping, it's great. It's, it's amazing that people are able to help them out, but they are not indebted to them in this way where they now have to share their story for marketing purposes. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think if donors knew that there would be so much more respect for the nonprofit because we know that they actually genuinely care about the people that they're helping from every angle. And if yeah. it doesn't benefit them to not include their story, then they're okay with that. They'll figure out another way. And the nonprofit should be able to let people know that. Like we work with this psychologist to make sure that our survivors are not harmed in this process of sharing their story. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I really love that idea. And I do have other clients who work with young people who do trauma work, for example, and they don't share their stories. But that was a shift really in the last 10 years. And they don't do tours anymore of their programs. All these things they used to do that they realized in the last 10 years were really harmful and they've changed a lot of their practices. And it certainly has been challenge in fundraising for them to reset expectations with their donors about how they're communicating out impact. And so it's totally possible It's not always super easy, especially if you're changing how you did it, but it's totally possible. And I think really important. And like you said, just being really transparent about why it's happening and that it's aligned with the work, the real work they're investing in is lined with this decision around how stories are told is really important too. I love that. Such a good question. (laughs) Okay. We could talk forever, but I know we have a lot of folks listening to this too. We have nonprofits, but we have a lot of nonprofit consultants too, who I think could be really interested in working with you. Because I think when I first started following you, it was in my own process. And you've even taught me some things on this. I'm like, I use the word only. I got to get that out of there. There are a lot of things you said where I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that was oppressive or, oh, I didn't realize that was oppressive. But it has been in my own process of saying, okay, I don't ever want a nonprofit, number one, to not make a conscious choice around whether or not they work with me, but also I don't want to harm the sector in my marketing for my work. And so trying to find this balance. So tell folks where they can find you, how they can work with you and your favorite way to connect with folks. Oh, sure. My favorite way to connect is on LinkedIn. So I guess if you just search my name, I'm the only Natalia Sanyal on LinkedIn, as far as I know. And then my website is nataliasanyal.com, N-A-T-A-L-I-A-S-A-N-Y-A-L. And the way that I'm working with folks right now, basically two ways. I could either do a copy audit of your sales copy, where I go through and optimize for conversions and harm reduction. And then the other way, 
way, and I don't know if that's relevant for your audience, but the other way that I help is brand messaging. Mm. So yeah, just making sure that your brand messaging is on point, which is actually what is required before you write the copy. I often work with thought leaders or people who want to be thought leaders who want to start a movement that might be helpful for your audience. Yeah, I've got I've got those on the go. I am not actively selling them, but I will be soon. So I think the best way to connect mm-hmm. with me is on LinkedIn and then we can come say hi in my DMs and have a conversation. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. It was so great. Thank you so much for having me. These conversations are not easy, even for me. And I felt super comfortable. So I really appreciate that. All right. There are so many amazing takeaways inside this episode that I will be applying to my work and business ASAP. Here are some of my favorite. Number one, swapping out the standard copywriting formula PAS, Problem Agitation Solution Framework, for a PES, Problem Empathy Solution Orientation. Number two, using psychology isn't bad. It's an important tool, and there are ways to use it that are not harmful. Natalia breaks down how to use psychology for positive ends by committing to empathy and getting inside our people's lived experiences, acknowledging and speaking to the pain that others face, leveraging stories to communicate shared experiences, providing meaningful context to frame testimonials, and articulating visions that resonate and are transformative. Number three, I loved the synergy we found between what commercial marketers refer to as informed decision-making and what I call conscious choice when it comes to donating. As I talk about in this episode, fear and guilt-based reflexive giving is usually a one-off. If we want sustainable fundraising, we need to fundraise sustainably, and that involves helping our donors make a conscious choice. Number four, I love the process that Natalia uses to help teams adopt more humanity-centered writing styles and inclusive messaging. Start by writing whatever you want. Go back afterward with an eye specifically to harm reduction. Consider who might be excluded, whether it's intentional and why. Make sure you've provided all the information required for an informed decision. And then ask yourself, If I was trying to get my child or my mom or my dad to purchase this thing, would I be comfortable with this message? Okay, there are so many more takeaways and tips inside this episode. So head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Natalia and all of her amazing work. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. 
go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.